Hello, this is retired Army First Sergeant Mark Flowers, and I would like to welcome you to this episode of the Fixed Bayonets podcast, Military History You Didn't Learn in School. If you've been a regular listener on my podcast, you might know that I was a Fleet Marine Force Corpsman in the 1st and 3rd Marine Divisions in the 1980s. This was really a formative part of my military career, and it sparked a lifelong interest in Marine Corps history. Semper Fidelis has always been more than just a hollow slogan to Marines. These two simple Latin words, meaning always faithful, are the motto of the Marine Corps. They can be found embroidered on the Corps' battle flags, tattooed on arms, backs, and other body parts, and painted on signs, rocks, buildings, and vehicles at almost every Marine Corps post and station. Most importantly, The motto embodies the spirit that Marines have carried into battle since the founding of the Marine Corps on November 10th, 1775. In this episode of the Fixed Bayonets podcast, we're going to step back in time nearly 80 years to find out what it meant to serve as a Marine or Fleet Marine Force Corpsman in World War II. Looking at the war through our 21st century lens, it's easy to lose sight of what really happened. With the luxury of this hindsight, we know how the battles and campaigns played out, who lived and died, and how the war ended. But in 1942 or 43, that was all in the future. I'll share some passages from authors who served as Marines during the war and then later recorded their memories and histories to help illustrate different aspects of the story. But first, I would like to share this passage with you from Colonel John Thomason who served with the Marine Brigade in the American Expeditionary Force in France during World War I. He later wrote the classic war book, Fixed Bayonets, which documented his service and that of the other Marines and soldiers that he served with in the American Expeditionary Force. This passage from Fixed Bayonets really embodies what it meant to be a Marine, especially looking through the lens of World War I, which was a seminal event in the development of the modern Marine Corps. And so, Colonel Thomason's words, There is nothing particularly glorious about sweaty fellows laden with killing tools going along to fight. And yet, such a column represents a great deal more than 28,000 individuals mustered into a division. All that is behind those men is in that column too. The old battles, long forgotten that secured our nation. Brandywine and Trenton and Yorktown. San Jacinto and Chapultepec, Gettysburg, Chickamauga, Antietam, El Caney, scores of skirmishes far off, such as Marines have nearly every year, in which a man can be killed as dead as ever a chap was in the Argonne. Traditions of things endured and things accomplished, such as regiments hand down forever. And the faith of men and the love of women and that abstract thing called patriotism, which I never heard a combat soldier mention. All this passes into the forward zone to the point of contact, where war is girt with horrors. And common men endure these horrors and overcome them 
along with the insistent yearnings of the belly and the reasonable promptings of fear. And in this, I think, is glory. Those were the words of Colonel John Thomason, U.S. Marine Corps, in Fixed Bayonets. In the classic motion picture, Sands of Iwo Jima, the battle-hardened leader, Sergeant John M. Stryker, told his young squad members, you joined the Marines because you wanted to fight. Well, you're going to get your chance. In World War II, men flocked to the Marine Corps expecting to be part of an elite force that was the first to land on opposed shores. The Corps lived up to their expectations. Nearly 98% of the men who joined the Corps served in the Pacific during the war. None of the other armed forces approached this level of efficiency and manpower during the war years. The drill instructor served as the gatekeeper into this unique fraternity. With a compressed time frame, his mission was to turn men of every shape, size, and background into basically trained Marines. When new recruits arrived in boot camp aboard the Marine bases in San Diego and Paris Island, they were stripped of every vestige from their previous existence. Formed into platoons, they embarked on a journey unlike any other in their lives. Leon Uris was a noted American author and novelist. He served as a Marine at World War II, and in 1953, his debut novel, Battle Cry, was published. In the novel, Mr. Uris described the initial meeting between a recruit platoon and their drill instructor in their first days at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego. I would like to share Mr. Uris' words with you today. With heavy eyelids and disheveled persons, they awaited the next process. Their wait was not long. A tall, leathery, red-headed corporal dressed in stiff khakis, pith helmet, and glossy shine shoes stepped before them with roster in hand. Tanj Hun, he snarled. The sun slowly cast light on the multi-looking recruits. The corporal's face was freckled and his eyes steel blue and cutting. He walked the line, hands on hips. From one hand dangled a stick 30 inches long with a leather-laced thong hanging from it. From now on, this is Platoon 143. My name is Corporal Whitlock. You'll hate the day you met me. Hey, Corporal, how about letting us get some sleep? Who said that? I did, Dwyer answered. A path cleared as the Corporal walked to Dwyer. For a full minute, Whitlock cut him down with an icy glare. What's your name, son? Ted Dwyer. My name is Private Theodore Dwyer, sir, Whitlock corrected. Puh, Private Theodore Dwyer, sir. Are you chewing gum? Yes, sir. Swallow it. <clears throat> he paraded before the new platoon, which stood frozen. Goddamn Yankees, he finally hissed. Goddamn Yankee is one word in my book. All right, you people. My name is Whitlock. You address me as sir. You son of a bitches aren't human beings anymore. I don't want any of you lily-livered bastards getting the idea you're Marines either. Your boots, crapheads, the lowest, stinking, scummiest form of animal life in the universe. I'm supposed to attempt to make Marines of you in the next three months. I doubt it. You goddamn Yankees are the most putrid-looking specimens of slime I have ever laid eyes on. Remember this, you son of a bitches. Your soul may belong to Jesus, but your ass belongs to me. The drill instructor's cordial welcome to the Corps thunderstruck them. They were all awake now, and the dawn came up like thunder out of Coronado. 
across the bay. Those were the words of Leon Uris from Battlecry. From dawn to dusk and far into the night, the drill instructors taught their new charges. Learning by the numbers, recruits absorbed a thousand lessons, large and small. They attended classes, learned to swim, ran the obstacle course. Slowly, they learned how to walk, talk, and act like Marines. For many of the new privates, this was their first time away from home. Their only contact with the outside world was through cherished letters from their friends and families. Lessons were hammered home through constant practice. Hour after hour, the platoons marched across the huge parade deck. They practiced snapping in with their rifles and then qualified. Entwined through it all was the bedrock of the Marine Corps, discipline. Here is another passage from Battlecry by Leon Uris to illustrate the learning process in Marine Corps boot camp. Pay attention, you stupid bastards. I don't know why I'm rushing you so, but I'm going to try to teach you crapheads to march. You always step off with your left foot. O'Hearn, point to your left foot. If you can, remember it. You hold your normal interval. Steps are 30 inches, not 29, not 31. He paused for a moment. O'Hearn, your other left, goddammit. Left, 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 two, three, four, left, right, left. Halt by the numbers. One, two. Don't anticipate the command of execution. Forward. Several men lurched forward on their toes in readiness to step off. Fall on your faces, you stupid bastards. Don't anticipate the command of execution. Hour after hour, the platoon stepped along to the broken record droning of the D.I.s. Left flank. Ho! Straighten up that goddamn line. Column right. Ho! Rear. Porch. Rear. Porch. Fall on your faces. Another helmet smashed down. The stick jabs a rib. In cadence, count. One, two, three, four, the platoon shouted back. Louder, damn it, louder. In cadence, count. One, two, three, four. That's the way I want to hear it. In cadence, count. One, two, three, four. Those were the words of Leon Uris from Battlecry. Calling his rifle a gun might earn the recruit a night spent sleeping with it. If he dropped his rifle on the deck, a cardinal sin, the recruit could be ordered to run laps around the parade deck with his rifle held high over his head. Serious lapses, such as calling a drill instructor anything other than sir, could end with the recruit marching around the area with his bucket on his head. Officers, seldom seen in boot camp, were lesser gods to be avoided at all costs. Somewhere along the way, the new privates discovered that they were becoming Marines, a special breed of men with one foot in the sea and the other on land. They also learned that the Marine uniform wasn't a suit of clothes, but a mark of distinction, and the Marine Corps emblem, Eagle Globe and Anchor, was much more than a badge. It was a way of life. A final passage by Leon Uris describing recruit graduation from boot camp. Whitlock's whistle blew them to assembly for the last unlamented time. As they had done a thousand times before, they poured through the door, almost taking the sash with them. They fell in. The D.I.s looked sharp as tin soldiers. From Beller's glistening fair leather belt hung a silver saber. 
he and Whitlock paced the ranks nervously, adjusting a field scarf here, a shoelace there, a cap at the correct angle, an ornament that had slipped. They scanned their charges from stem to stern and back to stem again. At ease, you goddamn Yankees have been chosen as the honor platoon. God alone knows why. After the colonel's inspection, we fall in behind the color guard and the band to pass and review. For Christ's sakes, don't march like a bunch of dog faces. Or her, Chernick, you know how to bear your standards and salute? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now don't forget, when I give eyes right, I want to hear them eyeballs click. Down the huge parade ground they marched, erect as one man. For the first time, they felt the full thrill of the title they would carry for the rest of their lives. Past the reviewing stand, Beller barked, Eyes! Right! And he flashed his silver saber to a salute. The band struck up the Marines' hymn. The standards of the battalion and platoon dipped as the colonel returned the salute. To a man, their hearts thumped, beating with pride beneath the neat green uniforms. They had paid with sweat, with humiliation, and a few tears for the name they had. They were Marines now, and would be, to the day they died. Those were the words of Leon Uris. Even the unofficial nicknames for Marines sounded tough. Soldiers might be called Dogface or G.I., and sailors were Swabies. But Marines were Leathernecks and Gyrenes. Anyone dumb enough to call a Marine seagoing bellhop or Jarhead risked a broken nose or worse. As I mentioned earlier, Marines didn't just serve on land. Another of their classic nicknames was Soldiers of the Sea. During the Revolution and the War of 1812, Marines sailed aboard ships with legendary names such as Bonhomme Richard, Constitution, and Constellation. High up in the riggings of the fighting tops, they scoured the enemy's decks with volleys of aimed fire. Those early leathernecks began a tradition that went down in history. Every Marine a rifleman. Exotic locales were part and parcel of the coarse tradition of small wars. Fighting from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, small units of Marines prevailed again and again against much larger forces. China, Africa, Central America, and the Caribbean. These far-off places were all familiar to old salts who might boast, hell, I've worn out more sea bags than you've worn out socks. To men like this, defeat was unthinkable. The Marine Corps lived up to its fighting reputation on the first day of the fighting at Bellow Wood in June 1918 in World War I. On that day, the Marine Brigade lost 1,087 men killed or wounded. That was more casualties than the Marine Corps had suffered in its entire history to that date. A company commander was advised by a French officer to retreat and was reputed to have replied, Retreat? Hell, we just got here. Here is another passage from Colonel John Thomason that illustrates one action in those long-ago days of June 1918 at Bellow Wood. This is from Fixed Bayonets. There was more wheat and more woods and obscure savage fighting among individuals in the Brushy Ravine. The attack, especially the inboard platoons of the 49th and 67th companies, burst from the trees upon a gentle slope of wheat that mounted to a crest of orderly pines black against the sky. A three-cornered coppice this side of the pines commanded the slope. Now it blazed with machine guns and rifles. The air was populous with wicked, keening noises. 
most of the front waves went down. All hands, very sensibly, flung themselves prone. Can't walk up to those babies. No, won't be enough of us left to get on with the war. Pass the word. Crawl forward. Keep in touch with the man on your right. Fire when you can. The officer, a big man who had picked up a German light machine gun somewhere with a vague idea of using it in a pinch, or in any case, keeping it for a souvenir, received the attention of a heavy maxim and went down with a dozen bullets through his chest. Men crawled forward. The wheat was agitated, and the Bosch, directing his fire by observers in treetops, browned the slope industriously. Men were wounded, wounded again, and as the lines of fire swept back and forth and finally killed. It helped some to bag the feldwebels in the trees. There were men in that line who could hit at 750 yards three times out of five, sweating, hot, and angry with a bleak, cold anger. The Marines worked forward. They were there, and the Germans, and there was nothing else in the clanging world. An officer, risking his head above the wheat, observed progress, and detached a corporal with his squad to get forward by the flank. Get far enough past that flank gun. Now, close as you can. Rush it, and we'll keep it busy. Nothing sounds as mad as rifle fire, staccato, furious. The corporal judged that he was far enough and raised with a yell, his squad leaping with him. He was not past the flank. Two guns swung this way and that and cut the squad down like a grasshook levels a clump of weeds. They lay there for days, eight Marines in a dozen yards, face down on their rifles. But they had done their job. The men in the wheat were close enough to use the split-second interval in the firing. They got in, cursing and stabbing. Meanwhile, to the left, a little group of men lay in the weeds under the very muzzle of a gun that clipped the stalks around their ears and riddled their combat packs, firing high by a matter of inches and the mercy of God. Those were the words of Colonel John Thomason, U.S. Marine Corps. After almost three weeks of grinding combat against elite German stormtroopers, the woods were firmly in American hands. On June 26, 1918, after beating off early morning counterattacks, a major on the Marine Brigade staff sent the signal, Woods now entirely, U.S. Marine Corps. The Germans, never given to overstatement, were astounded at the fighting ability of the American Marines. A German officer whose unit fought against the brigade in Bellow Wood was rumored to have reported to his commander, Sie kämpfen wie Teufelhunde. They fight like hounds from hell. The nickname stuck, and ever since, Marines have proudly worn that name, Devil Dog. In the dark time of December 1942, Americans hung on the gallant deeds of Wake Island's defenders. After fighting off the first Japanese attack, the garrison commander transmitted a long radio message to Pacific headquarters requesting reinforcements and supplies. The radio man inserted several passages of filler text at the end of the message before encoding it. In the text was the phrase, send more Japs. Although in reality meaningless, the story of Send More Japs was widely reported in the press and became part of the wartime lore of the Marine Corps. During the war, the Marine Corps grew to a size never equaled before or since 475,000 men and women at the largest point. Nevertheless, 
With the exception of the Coast Guard, the Marine Corps was the smallest of the armed services. It was small enough that Marines had shipmates and buddies serving all over the world. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were part of an elite fighting force. Their mission of assault from the sea against heavily defended islands only strengthened this belief. Again and again, they proved the old axiom, the Marines have landed and the situation is well in hand. Every transfer, each new assignment, brought the World War II Marine closer to his baptism of fire. That split second in time that changed him forever. Marines became masters at using every weapon in the inventory to blast, blow, or burn the enemy out of his defenses. There was no other choice. In a world with no option but victory, firepower was often the difference that helped crush the Japanese. But even in those instances where the fighting was desperate and man-to-man, such as Edson's Ridge on Guadalcanal in 1942, Tarawa in 1943, Peleliu in 1944, in Iwo Jima, 1945. It wasn't the Marines' arsenal that carried the day. It was the young Americans themselves. William Manchester was a noted American historian and in World War II, an infantry Marine. He wrote the book Goodbye Darkness, a memoir of the Pacific War. I would like to share with you a passage from the book. These are William Manchester's words. In the 25 centuries since Thermopylae, war has variously been described as an art, a profession, and a science. But the Marine infantryman of World War II was more a skilled blue-collar worker. His weapons were his tools. And even after he had become a journeyman, he worked ceaselessly to improve his mastery of his craft. To this day, I could, if called upon, hold the pen of a Mark II hand grenade release the safety lever, giving me four seconds before it will explode, count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, and then hurl it and hit the deck. The raiders on Edson's Ridge could rapidly replace warped machine gun barrels in the dark because they had done it a thousand times blindfolded. Not only blindfolded, but also working against the clock. Between battles, we field stripped and reassembled rifles, carbines, heavy and light machine guns, BARs, and 60 and 81 millimeter mortars, the artillery of the infantry. The BAR was a bitch. There were bolts and firing pins, extractors and receiver groups, a sliding leg assembly, a flash hider, a bipod bearing, and a recoil spring and guide. I lack small muscle skills, and I have the mechanical IQ of about 32, but I became adroit with all infantry arms. I had no choice. It was that or my ass. Those were the words of William Manchester in Goodbye Darkness, a memoir of the Pacific War. Each time that Marines climbed down the nets of their transports off the reef of a Pacific island on their own D-Day, every one of them knew somewhere in his mind that this might be it. It didn't take much imagination to realize that death was random in combat. Once a Marine saw buddies being killed at close range, it was impossible not to think, that could have been me. You see, no matter how skilled the Marine might be with his equipment and weapons, the next artillery round might have his number on it. His amphibian tractor could be the next to take a direct hit. The Japanese could have that patch of ground zeroed in and interlocked with machine gun fire. The possibilities were endless. 
the wartime Marines knew something about death, too much. In their youth, they were already familiar with cemeteries. Each time they returned to their camps after an operation, there were empty bunks, buddies who were just gone, and holes in the platoon to be filled with replacements. The phrase, kill or be killed, was more than just empty words to them. It was life and death. Major General Graves Erskine served as a young Marine infantry officer in the Battle of Belo Wood. He went on to command the 3rd Marine Division at the campaign for Iwo Jima in 1945. At the dedication of his divisional cemetery, General Erskine spoke these words that must represent what countless Marines of World War II felt about their fallen brothers. General Graves Erskine's words. There is nothing I can say which is wholly adequate to this occasion. Only the accumulated praise of time will pay proper tribute to our valiant dead. Long after those who lament their immediate loss are themselves dead, these men will be mourned by the nation. They are the nation's loss. There is talk of great history, of the greatest fight in our history, of unheard sacrifice and unheard courage. These phrases are correct but they are prematurely employed. The evidence has not sufficiently been examined. Even the words and phrases used by historians to describe the fight for Iwo Jima, when the piecemeal story of our dead comes to light, will still be inadequate. Victory was never in doubt. Its cost was. The enemy could have displaced every cubic inch of volcanic ash on this fortress with concrete pillboxes and blockhouses, which he nearly did, and still, Victory would not have been in doubt. What was in doubt, in all our minds, was whether there would be any of us left to dedicate our cemetery at the end, or whether the last Marine would die knocking out the last Japanese gun and gunner. Let the world count our crosses. Let them count them over and over. Then, when they understand the significance of the fighting for Iwo Jima, let them wonder at how few there are. We understand, and we wonder, we who are separated from our dead by a few feet of earth, from death by inches and fractions of an inch. Of the cost to us in quality, no one will ever understand that who did not fight side by side with those who fell. Let us do away with names, with ranks and rates and unit designations here. Do away with terms regular, reserve. Veteran, boot, old-timer, replacement. They are empty, categorizing words which belong only in the adjutant stole vocabulary. Here lie only Marines. Those were the words of Major General Graves Erskine at the dedication of the 3rd Marine Division Cemetery on Iwo Jima. With the world in conflict, Marines smelled and tasted war on the most intensely personal level. They stood on the rails of darkened troop ships, wondering how long they had to live. They looked at their buddies, standing in formation, asking themselves, I wonder who isn't going to make it. They saw too many of their best friends die in the most horrible way possible. Many of them were just out of boyhood, and they all answered the call of duty. That call took them into combat against one of the toughest opponents in our nation's history, the Empire of Japan. Across fire-swept beaches and trackless jungles, 
on rugged coral ridges. The Marines of World War II kept going. Their buddies died. They closed ranks, regrouped, and moved out. Every battle, each campaign, every freshly dug grave was a marker on the road to Tokyo. At the end of every Pacific campaign, survivors looked out across blasted landscapes littered with the wreckage of combat. The destruction of lives and resources was horrendous, beyond comprehension to anyone who had not experienced it. Often immense, the death toll was terribly painful for those who were still standing. Filthy, exhausted, hungry, with the stench of battles in their nostrils, young men were glad to be alive, but mourned the loss of so many shipmates. Colonel Alan R. Millett is a retired Marine and university professor. He wrote a book called Semper Fidelis, The History of the United States Marine Corps. The colonel wrote a description of the World War II Marine, which I would like to share with you today. Backed by tanks and artillery, the Marine infantry proved it could clear caves with hand-carried demolitions, stand firm against human wave attacks, capture hills against the most stubborn resistance, even if it left bodies along the barren and blasted slopes, and endure all the numbing rigors of warfare amid coral cliffs and entangling jungles. As both the Marines and the Japanese learned, naval gunfire, air support, massive artillery, and tanks gave the Americans the tactical advantage. But in the end, the last Japanese defenders had to be beaten by Marine infantry. The hero of Forager was the individual rifleman, barely out of his boyhood, often scared, and sometimes blindly heroic. He fought and conquered and created the image of the modern Marine Corps. On his head rests a helmet covered with camouflage cloth. His light green cotton dungarees with the black USMC globe and anchor on the left pocket are stained and often bloody. His M1 is scratched, but clean. His leggings, if he still has them, cover soft brown work shoes. Around his waist hangs a cartridge belt carrying two canteens, a first aid packet, and a K-bar knife. Burned by the tropic sun, numbed by the loss of comrades, sure of his loyalty to the Corps and his platoon, scornful of the Japanese, but wary of their suicidal tactics, he squints into the western sun and wonders what island awaits him. Those were the words of Colonel Alan R. Millett, United States Marine Corps retired, that the Marine Corps grew so large, yet maintained its fighting effectiveness throughout the war was a testament to this firm foundation of courage, sacrifice, and commitment that made up the fighting Marine ethos. In the final tally, the United States Marine Corps was victorious not because of its weapons, but because of its men. Struggling to survive each day, American men wearing the Eagle Globe and Anchor accomplished their mission. Many of them died in battle, and more were wounded. Some succumbed to the horrors of combat. Others were injured or killed by accidents. All of those who served were affected in ways large and small by their experiences of war. In the end, the Marine Corps was a mirror of how the United States saw itself. Forged as warriors, formed into well-trained and well-equipped teams, the World War II Marine faced and overcame an implacable foe. 
that neither gave quarter nor asked for it. Those World War II Marines lived up to the very highest traditions of those who went before them. The wartime Marines won their own battle laurels, and in the doing, they achieved a level of courage and honor that became a symbol for generations of Americans and a mark of honor for all time. I would like to thank you for tuning into this episode of the Fixed Bayonets podcast, Military History You Didn't Learn in School. I hope you'll visit my website, fixedbayonets.us. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter. And until the next episode, this is retired Army First Sergeant Mark Flowers signing off. <laughs>